You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 335 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have poet, editor, arts advocate Craig Churi on the program. Craig and I discuss being adopted, birth as our first exile, masks, hitchhiking, inspiration and harnessing it, Keats, Shelley, Dunn, Morrison, Tony that is, living in the wharf in San Francisco, and several really awesome insights and stories too. A great conversation with poet Craig Churi. We have an EWSA titled Power, and Craig shares through his own reading five of his poems, and of course, an EW poem too titled Feckless. All of this, as is always the case, is imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 335 of Troubadours and Tours. Is my 
power. He came into view out of the woods and walked up the grass-covered hill. I aimed my Smith and Weston at his head. This wild boar had not a sense of my presence. I felt the cool late summer breeze through my hair. I paused, made certain of the mark, and pulled the trigger. The boar fell to the grass, his power gone. My power was warm and solid in these hands. What is power? Is it to take or is it to give? When I witness and wait, as did Walt Whitman in his Leaves of Grass, is that not powerful? The patience and openness, the steadfast belief in the present moment, and what from the past led you there, and the faith that it is worth your time here to spend waiting as a witness. These days, like I suppose most days for others here too, and like for those people before, these days are wondrous and wily, tumultuous and victorious, just to see the stars, feel the sun, and smell the rain. Mundane for some, sometimes, with lapse of heart and imaginative depths of soul. And just like everything is nothing, and nothing is infinite inside of everything, power is alive, and kindness is to understand and thrive, even as does still that boar wild on the hillside. Well, the good old day 
may not return no. And the rocks might melt And the sea may burn I'm learning to fly But I ain't got wings, no Hello, Craig Churi. Is that you? That's me, Conundrum. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tour, sir. I listen to you all over the world. You're very popular. (laughs) That means so much to me. Thank you, sir. That means you made my day, my year. (laughs) Before we get started, I'd like to share with the listeners a little background information, if you don't mind. Okay. Craig Churi earned his Master's of Fine Arts degree from Wilkes University, where he was awarded the prestigious Norris Church Mailer Fellowship. Mr. Churi is the author of over 20 books of poetry, and his poems have been translated into Albanian, Arabic, Chinese, Croatian, German, Italian, Lithuanian, Macedonian, Portuguese, Spanish, and Russian. He was the 2011 Laureate of the Ditet e Nemet International Albanian Poetry Festival in Macedonia. Craig served from 2010 through 2012 as Poet Laureate of Berks County, Pennsylvania. 
Mr. Cherry has spent a lifetime creating energetic poetry, performances, and poetry environments around the world, in schools, communities, homeless shelters, prisons, and mental hospitals. He teaches, writes, and plays harmonica in both Europe and the United States of America. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Craig Cherry. I'm so happy. That sounds, I love hearing stuff like that. It just reminds me of what I really should be doing. <laughs> yeah, well, it puts things into perspective for you, right? I mean, you're, you're humble, obviously, but you start thinking, wow, have I done all that? I know, I, and I'm not humble. I'm just lost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this is going to be a good conversation. I can tell. Let's uh, let's get started. Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you found poetry. I um, I I found poetry as a displaced person. I was born at the Nesbitt Hospital in Kingston uh, from a woman who gave me up, and uh, on my way to St. Michael's Orphanage. Uh, the John Churry family picked me up, John and Nelda Churry, um, who raised me in the back mountain outside of Wilkes-Barre. Well, um, Edmund Jabez, the Egyptian poet, in one of his poems says, birth is our first exile. And... I believe that we have a uh, we we have this uh, environment that we come from another world into, and then we're let go of at birth, and being given away at birth was my second exile, and being raised among strangers. So I uh, I came into this world with a question that is now my most often asked question, where am I and who are these people? <laughs> so I, I think the attempt to answer that, when I was younger and failing school continuously, I, uh, my most often asked question was, in the company, in the face of other people's information, well, what's this got to do with me? And it's the easiest question to just blow off and then start studying the rotations of the ceiling fan or uh, the watermarks on the ceiling tiles or uh, the, the, the electrical socket just winked at me. So it's, it's, it was a lifetime of, of disengaging from other people's information to actually go study all of the discarded and disregarded objects of the world which then became the objects of my poetry. Wonderful. Wonderful. You are a poet. There's no doubt. There's no way around it. You're... Having, having failed everything else, what's left? <laughs> <laughs> You've got, you got language. <laughs> oh, and language is so important to me. You know, I, I know I feel it, it probably uh, is to everybody, but I don't know. I don't know if people realize how beautiful... And how powerful language is. Well, especially if you traveled to foreign countries, all you have is language. Right. And you, uh, conundrum, uh, behind the mask of the, the radio, um, that's, all, that's all you have. Right. We, we, we can't, until you take your mask off, 
at, at, as, at the end of life, um, you know, we don't know who you are. Nice. Nicely, nicely, uh, nicely framed. I like that. And it, it is, so it, it is to you in a way, language is a way to not only communicate who you are, but to sort of mask who you are. Right. It's, um, it's, it, it's a lifetime of, of peeling, um, layers of masks, social, social masks, um, pretensions, um, accumulated, uh, affectations, um, uh, to get at the real, the root of a word that actually means something to somebody. I had a student, uh, one time raise his hand and say, uh, but Mr. Churi, you must love language. You must love language as a poet. And I had to admit at that moment, um, no, I, it, I don't love language as a poet. For me, language is a torment. And the, the, the growing up, not just in northeastern Pennsylvania, but growing up in this screwy world, it's like, how many times have I gotten slapped as a young boy because I didn't find the right words? Or how many times have I been sent to my room because, from the dinner table because I wasn't finding the right words? Or how many times have I failed uh, or been punished because I didn't find the right words? So language is has been a... a, a a struggle and a torment in ways that uh, um, something inside me just keeps trying to get it right. Well, you know, it's interesting the way you use the word "right," right words. That that, and I, I, I would uh, say is in a way um, subjective, right? You might think you're using the right word. You might actually be using if you're if the word in such a, a precise. Uh, provocative manner. That's why you get in trouble. <laughs> you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. It's all about hanging hanging out with the wrong people, especially your family. So it's it's like, yeah, I think I can go somewhere else and make and feel and have myself feel better. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's a hard thing to do. I was just having a conversation with a, a friend recently about that. You know, they're dealing with somebody close to them in their life, you know, uh, very close to them. And, and the person is just not a healthy, you know, influence day in and day out. They make this person feel bad about themselves yeah. and keeps them connected to a part of the, the past that they really rather not be connected to anymore. And but they don't want to let go of this person because they feel obligated. And I'm saying I said to them, I said, you know what? You're obligated to yourself more so. You know, you, if you're losing yourself because of this person and there's right. no way out, then you got to cut ties with that person. You think that was bad advice? No, I, I don't think it's – well, I mean, I, I am, I'm the last person to ask that because I grew up with people I didn't belong to. Uh, and so my, my sense of um, – uh, and I, I think I grew up with people who didn't like me also. So I, I didn't – I have to thank my father who raised me. Um, for picking up hitchhikers as a young boy, um, the kids who were either you know hitchhiking out of Dallas to Central Catholic or whoever he saw on the road, he always stopped and gave them a lift, which taught me as a young boy that 
anytime I needed to leave town, it was just a drop of the thumb. Hmm. And I and I and I did since I was age eight. Eight I was eight years old when I first hitchhiked, and uh, and I'd spent uh, twenty five years, fifteen years uh, when I was a young man, and then the last last five last five years I've spent hitchhiking um, up in the uh, fracking region in Susquehanna County, um, and then over in uh, Italy where I where I teach, I hitchhike. And how is it in, in uh, Italy or Europe when hitchhiking is compared to here in the United States? Do you find a difference in, in the response of, of drivers? Well, I, I teach in a, a school for the science. I teach poetry writing in a science high school 30 miles from the town where I live uh, in Lombardia. Uh, and uh, I, I don't speak Italian. Uh, I, um, so I have to rely on... Uh, whatever whatever sounds i can make and a sign i always carry a sign with the name of the town somchino and uh and at the same time my friends are in the in the in the in the bar in somchino taking bets on who's going to pick me up <laughs> and paolo's convinced no the italians will not pick him up they just they won't and everybody's agreeing with that and then somebody said well the indians may pick him up there's a large Sikh population. And every ride that I've gotten over the course of three months, um, the Egyptians pick me up. The Venezuelans pick me up, wherever they come from. Um, the Romanians pick me up. And, uh, and then one time, yes, the Italians picked me up. <laughs> but only took me halfway. So, But not the Sikhs. They never picked you up. The Sikhs, I have not, I've not gotten a ride with the Sikhs yet. No. Now, that's, that's, new, that's a future ambition. And, you know, these rides must be in some way uh, an inspiration for a nice little piece here and there, I would, I would think. It le leads me, it allows me to, to uh, go into the next question. You know, where do you find inspiration and how do you harness it and transform it into a piece? Well... Um, you know, that, that question, where am I and who are these people? The attempt to answer that, uh, those two questions is an enormous, uh, piece of writing right there from whichever moment, whichever time of day, whichever direction. Um, I, I find myself having always written, uh, in towns where I have not, where I haven't been familiar um, I'll write in a cafe or a restaurant uh, surrounded by the talk of people um, and that kind of um, that kind of white noise has has really given me uh, like a pillow for for what words I'm searching for in the, in the din of, of other people's conversations and uh, are you in the moment then as to what you're trying to emulate? With well, your piece, or, yeah, you, or you, you know, you're using it to, that to try to get at some other theme or some other thought that's in your head from before the time you sat in that cafe, for example. Yeah, because there's a tone of voice, um, and I think it's the tone of voice that gives me my memory or the memory of experiences um, more than anything else. Because you know, growing up in the coal region here, 
English wasn't my first language. Broken English was my first language. And before I could, uh, before I un had, could understand what actually was being said, amid all of those tones and their fluctuations and their gestures and their, 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 their intonations and passions um, and anger, um, I had to read the tones of voices faster and long before I, I learned to read the English language. If not, then what? If you didn't read the tones correctly, well, then you then you got you got a backhand, or you got um, you just you just missed it. You just missed out. You know? and um, and I I think that's one of the uh, one of the elements of language that brings me to poetry, because I don't really understand what poetry says or what a poem says. I don't really I don't always get it. But it's the tone of the voice that the poem is written from that draws me down inside it. And then something inside of me starts talking back or starts formulating a w uh, words that, um, that allow me to speak in my own poems. So a lot of ways, I'm I use other, other poets' poems to get at my own voice, my own tone, my own... Um, I don't know whatever's swimming around under there, and uh, that's that's what I pick up in my travels from uh, listening to other people's conversations or just the din of their conversations. I love it. I love it. Maybe that's all my poems are. My books are 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 just the din of continual conversations that uh, happen to coagulate. And if they resonate with those who read your poems, then you're doing something, you know, that is, I think, I mean, it's valuable if it feels good for you on a, on a personal level, I suppose. But, you know, even more so, it's valuable if, if someone else can, can get a little something. I think, you know, I work like, like painters work. I, I, move the, I move the words around until they feel right. Yeah. And, and you know, go ahead. No, I'm just, um, I'm just, um, I'm just looking at the page. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at uh, the way the poem wants to speak. I can write what I, what I, what I'm thinking about, but then there's an there's an element of, of poetry that I call surrendering intention. I intended to write this poem about, but man, after I finish writing it. I start playing around. I'll read it from the bottom up. I'll start playing around with the with the uh, just w the phrases and splicing the phrases, and I'll just let the poem. I'll let the phrases and the poem and the, and, and and the words just play or move it around, move it around, and let let's see what the poem wants to say. And how do you know when to say when? When to stop playing around with it and say, okay, this is it. This is this is the this is that piece. When I when I think when I when I exhaust its possibilities, really, I mean, it's like something thrills me, but then something thrills me again, and then something surprises me, and then all of a sudden the poem starts to say something that I don't know where that came from, but it came from me, and it, it came from the configuration of words that I allowed it to take on, and uh, and and I learned that in high school. 
I learned that I, I think everything I do is, um, is a way to vindicate my misspent education. I, would, uh, I remember sitting in Mrs. Hopkins's English class, and we're studying those lovely British poets that I can never figure out what they're about. <laughs> I hear you. It was nothing, nothing really was lovely. And if you talked like that around, even in the hallways, let alone take that language home, you'd get beat up. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. But here I'm just, I, got, I got Keats on one page of the textbook and I got Shelley on the other page. And, the, and Mrs. Hopkins is trying to explain what these poems mean and the symbolism and, the, and, the, and, and, and I, don't understand, I don't get it. But all of a sudden the first line in Keats's poem and the first line in Shelley's poem, they sound pretty good. And I'm, so I'm, I'm going through the two poets and I'm sliding the lines of their poems back and forth and I'm digging it because you're not supposed to be doing that. You can't, <laughs> you can't be messing around with, with, these, with, with literature. And then we get to the, turn the page and all of a sudden there's John Donne. Oh my God, <laughs> John Donne from the bottom up is the best piece of language you can ever. I don't know what his poems are about. I try to read them from the top down. I don't. I don't. You know. So eh, okay, but but my God, and you and read his poems from the bottom up. I'm gonna try better, and, and I'm excited. <laughs> except I don't. I, I don't understand what 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 the teacher's talking about, and of course I flunk. But well, but I, that's that's the way I uh, that's I teach that's that that method, and I I vindicate my um, I didn't do anything wrong. And that method being move the words around, move move it move the words around until they feel right. And, because you're, because you're not supposed to you can be, because like it's like it's like this naughty thing to do with language. Uh, have you like do you often or ever write a poem just you know several lines and just don't touch it and that's it? It's good first time out. No, I don't. No, I don't think I ever did that. I don't. Um, uh, maybe because I'm a lousy speller, so I would have to go back and in correcting my spelling. I realize something else could be happening, and uh, and I and I usually no I I don't I don't think I ever did uh, a poem like right out of the shoot. Now, when we when we talk about poets, other poets uh, that you might really have uh, first time you heard their work, you were just taken by them. Mm-hmm. Who, who are those folks? Um, the first poet that actually taught me how to read i was 19 years old i'd hitchhiked out to out to san francisco and i was living uh on the streets down by the wharf uh and i stumbled i went up to north beach and, and stumbled stumbled into uh city lights bookstore i didn't know what it was oh man i'd never heard of ferlin getty but uh so I, I stumbled in, and I, the poetry section was down in the basement, and I was looking, and I and I found a volume of poetry by Charles Reznikoff. Uh, 
and he's um i just i just started reading them and the poems were tough they were they were they were succinct they were they were not very long and there was and and i found out after i bought the book that uh he was a lawyer in new york and these poems came from legal briefs of um, the situations, uh, dire situations of men and women in the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century. And all of a sudden, I realized that, like, this is the, this is, these are family scenarios or personal scenarios that he's writing from that are just as bleak and grueling as the family and personal situations that we grew up with here in the coal region. And now the page became more crucial because the, the, the lines of the poems were speaking to me. The scenarios of the poems were speaking to me personally. But the page became uh, uh, this huge cushion for my eyes to slow down on. I can rest my eyes on the white of the page while... I'm digesting one line into another line. Into another. And, and this, again, was Charles... Charles Reznikoff. Reznikoff. And now, he meant, he was a lawyer, saying, and, and, but th these, it's, it's, was he synthesizing or sharing what he, he experienced as a lawyer in his poetry, or was he using transcripts of his work as a lawyer as poetry? Both, both. He, he was using the transcripts for his poetry, but as a, as a lawyer and as someone who's uh, empathetic to the, to the suffering of humanity, um, as he was, um, he was getting at his own personal experiences through the experiences of, of, these, of, 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 of history. You know, it reminds me, I've read some, uh, some writings of Clarence Darrow. Mm -hmm. And he does that as well. You yeah. Know, uh, yeah. He, uh, as, as you know, one of the champions of the underdog. And uh, uh, I, that was one of, one of the things that captivated me when I read his writings is how he, he does touch on humanity based on, uh, on, in a very poignant way, he reflects on his experiences. Well, and that's it. I mean, it's like these are the stories of history. And, you know, if you want to convey what's happening now, you don't have to go far back. But I, it's valuable to, to emphasize other people's stories in order to tell your own. Studs Terkel does that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Craig Churi here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. My pleasure to have him on the program, poet, editor, arts advocate, among other things. Uh, we have uh, several more minutes, not much more time. We'll have to talk again for sure. We're just getting started. I know. We're just winding up. There, there are two things I want to go to before we end our conversation. First of all, you gave me five poems. You recorded yourself reading them. Uh, I want you to tell me which one you prefer that I play later. I'm going to play it after a song. And, and the, uh, what, do you have one of, that you prefer? You know what? Um, they're all new poems, too. Um, I, let's, you know, I chose those poems because I liked them the most. They were, um, 
they they moved, they traveled, they they encompassed um, more more personal territory. I wrote them when I was living in Albania, although the one I wrote, uh, the, the I think the first one um, is um, that I'm filming a poem I wrote when I was living in Chile. So, but they all contain ele uh, elements of various points of my life and my observations. I mean, that's that's where sitting in a classroom trying to figure out you know, what's this got to do with me has carried throughout my life, whether I'm sitting on a bus, whether I'm in a cafe, whether I'm walking down the street, like wh what's this got to do with me? And it's always that the attempt to answer, once, once I, 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 I engaged with the, trying to answer that question, that's when the poetry came together. Before that, I was just ga gathering space, gathering the objects that occupied the space, and it, it, it did look like I had that lost look on my face, although I had never been more found in my life. I, that you gave me a nice insight as to where they they came from those five poems that you shared with me, uh, but you're, I guess you're leaving me to choose which one to play. Huh? I want to ask you this question before yeah. we go. Yeah. Are poets born as such, or can one train themselves to be one? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because first of all, as an art form, um, just because I speak language doesn't mean I can speak poetry. It's just no different than just because I can blow into a trombone doesn't mean I can play music. There is study. There is um, there are fundamentals to learn about language and and how the poetic language is crafted. So um, even though I, yes, I have had a, a vagabond life, I've also studied with some very important poets in 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 classrooms and in and in. Uh, in various, you know, environments where I would seek them out. Um, I studied with Richard Hugo in Montana um, when he thought I was a graduate student, but I would just, I just knew he was lecturing, so I would go and sit in on his classes. I studied, um, I hitchhiked up to, um, up to uh, Columbia University when I was living in Virginia, to sit in the in, in the same room with Yuda Amakai, the, the great is, Israeli soldier poet, and corresponded with Amakai, and uh, I corresponded with poets. I hitchhiked. Uh, I drove a freight truck from Dallas to San Francisco, hitchhiked up the coast and into Vermont to study with Charles Simic at the uh, Breadloaf Writers Conference. Not knowing uh, inadvertently that I would also have to study with Toni Morrison and John Gardner. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I had this, my Pisces, going, two fish going in the opposite direction. I did have, um, I, I did formally study with poets who, when I, at a young age, slammed my head against all of the desks in the world to tell me that I have no idea what poetry means or is about Great. which caused me, caused me even to get tougher 
That's a great. I think that's a great place to pause our conversation. Until next time, Craig Cherry. And uh, you know, I want to give you an opportunity as well to get let people get in contact with your work. How could they do that? Um, my um, um, my website is first and last name CraigChurry dot com. You want to spell that for folks? C R A I G C Z U R Y dot com. And what books of mine that are in print, you can order through my website. Um, you can Google me. You can friend me on Facebook. Um, next month, I have to be in Greece to receive uh, an, uh, the Alexander the Great Gold Medal of Letters and Arts. Wow. Congratulations. From, from UNESCO. So I'm... So I'm I'm looking forward to that, and then I go back to Italy, um, where I teach. Where living, I make poetry. Where I make poetry happen in a science high school. That's well. That it needs to happen there for sure. I know that's that's a, that's a great act of subversion. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure talking with you, and and you know, thank you for reaching out and for listening to the program, and I'd love to have you on again. Uh, Craig Churi, poet, editor, arts advocate, and really. Excellent soul, I can tell. Uh, you you want to uh, leave us with uh, a closing thought before uh, we, we sign off and go into a song? Upon leaving, each of us has his own sadness, her own sadness. I know I have my own, but it's secret, possibly from a place long before I was born. It only intensifies when I'm leaving, not thinking about leaving, not packing to leave, but in motion, which is also could be a sadness for arriving, this secret excitement I have for becoming no one. Ciao. Conundrum. Ciao.
There are ones who stand on myth and the mystic. There are ones who stand on dream. There are ones who stand on the laws that defy the laws of gravity. There are ones who stand on the path of least resistance, the principle that everyone is created from nothing equally, the scent between your legs. There are ones who stand in the light inside the dark behind their eyelids, the ones who stand on nothing with nothing but everything in a naked look, a blank stare, that trance while waiting in line, the ones who stand in silence when pressed for a key, the vital signs of a solution. I know what that is, but I don't know how to say it. I'm going there now, but I'm standing on a hunch, a gut feeling. I'm standing on a figment of my imagination, a quirk, a fluke, a whim, my intuition of what it means to be standing in the ether, waiting for a sign to move into anyone's good guess. When the two poets meet in my dream, one of them has already been dead, but I'm the only one who knows that. We are guests who have traveled great distances for a gathering, and not knowing if they know each other, I introduce them step back to just watch, seeing that the way my friend who's died is carrying himself, his gait across the lawn with his hand outstretched, his famously wide grin, their joy for being there and meeting, their embrace, will go down as something truly remarkable after I leave them there to figure things out. Of everything that gets lost in a lifetime, of everything that eventually gets justified, turned to irony or black humor, of every way to go looking for reprieve or forgiveness. I'm propped up on my elbows out the open window, the train length of what used to be Yugoslavia. Three boys my age along the tracks are shooting us with stick guns. The field workers my age are cutting corn stalks with sickles, stacking them like teepees. A girl my age walks down to the well with a wooden bucket, lowers it on a rope. The grimace on her face when she pulls it full is pre-biblical. Of everything in this lifetime forgotten, my friend undresses for me in the dark, dropping her prosthetic leg inside her jeans, the thud. Waking up in the cemetery after chased by dogs across the railroad tracks, scaling the ancient stone wall, blood-caked nails, the swamp house with shadows of men walking around inside the water through its burnt-out floorboards, of everything needed to be memorized or written down 
to be remembered. There is never enough vodka, never enough television. Of this I need to say to you at this whatever unexpected moment, there is never enough bewilderment. I am filming what I should be writing, said the poet who is now a filmmaker. I am writing a poem to a woman who has captured my imagination, said the filmmaker who is now a poet. I am filming my imagination, said the daydreamer pretending a camera. The words spoken in a dream confound the poet. Are they his words or the words of the one dreamed who spoke them? The filmmaker shoots a live-action selfie with the daydreamer's camera as he walks into the sea, backwards. So much more to grasp beyond understanding. I write this into each poem as the only reason I write. If you can't keep up with the jazz, listen for the music. Just may be the pitch. Pitch with wonder, I learned from Satchel Page. Pitch with amazement. I learned thumbing cross-country from traveling salesmen who pegged me for northeastern Pennsylvania, Scranton, no Wilkes-Barre, as soon as I opened my mouth. Not what I was saying, but how I was saying. Same difference last weekend in Estonia among Russians. I don't understand the words you're saying, man, but I get it. I get the gist, the air open between what you're actually saying and what I think you're saying. That's everything. Psychology for Dummies tells us at the moment of conception, you can't duck expectations. All you can do, like poetry, is bob and weave.
Feckless opportunists part and parcel to their clan, helping to perpetuate their lineal scam. Tribal, crab bucket, Cro-Magnon, human. You got to meet the mother before you kiss the bride, before you take the longest ride. Before the rice and flowers fly You've got to meet the mother Before you kiss the bride And see where she got Those big brown eyes Those long, long legs That sense of style Or a streak of madness Ten miles wide You've got to meet the mother Before you kiss the bride You could discover the cruelty Concealed deep within 
in a county jail or a state-run home in the driving hell she could have two good teeth and one good eye that's why you meet the mother before you kiss the bride some fruit rolls far Episode 335 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, poet Craig Churi. And I also would like to say to you congratulations on the Alexander the Great Medal your being bestowed in Greece for arts and letters. I also would like to thank these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Beck, Kurt Vile, Sinead O'Connor, Steely Dan, Jonathan Rice, Branford Marsalis, and of course Terrence Blanchard too. Until next week, why don't we give it a go? and try to enjoy this one. Thanks so much for listening.